Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2018. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, you may call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. Let's read from 1 Samuel chapter 16. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided in myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shamnah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with bright eyes, and good-looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Father, this is your word, and we look to you and to you alone to teach us. Father, would you open our eyes and uh, lead us and give us understanding of heart that we may see Christ and be changed more into his likeness. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. Ecclesiastes tells us that in a number of different ways that endings well matters. In fact, the implications running through the book is that starting well is easier, ending well is much more of a challenge, but far more important. As one verse says, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Patience will help you end well, pride will not. 1 Samuel and not first Samuel, one Samuel, after, after I preached in the first service, and Mark Wills from the Northern Ireland came up and was grateful that I encouraged him in faithfulness. He was beginning to doubt whether it was one or first Samuel. We're grateful for small fruit coming out of sermons, encouraging the remnant. One Samuel is a transition point in the history of Israel. Eli and his household. A transition to Samuel. Judges, the end of Judges, and the move to monarchy. And then the transition from the house of Saul to the house of David. 
1 Samuel 16, Samuel's life itself and his ministry is coming to an end. Along with Saul's rule and David's kingship and the Davidic kingdom is just beginning. And so 1 Samuel 16 is an ideal lens for us to be able to see the end of a matter, that is Samuel's life and ministry, and the beginning of a matter, David and his rule. As you'll see, Samuel perhaps does not end so well. David but does begin well. For us at Christ Church, this is an important lesson to learn. We are entering, biblically speaking, the second generation. We celebrated 40 years just a couple of years ago. We are in the near future of the Lord willing and in God's timing and provision, transitioning from the field house and what has been a nomadic existence for 40 years to our own building. The generation that has labored to this point will be passing on the baton to the next generation. And we want to remain faithful. And we want to pass on that inheritance, an inheritance of faithfulness. And so we want to end well. We want to end as we began. And patience is the key to that, not pride. In order to set 1 Samuel 16 in its right context, uh, we need to pick up the themes and threads that the book uh, lays for us in the preceding 16 chapters. And the two main themes are that of seeing and that of sight and the issues of the heart. Those are the two threads that weave their way through. Okay, Samuel's life is coming to an end. We hear nothing more of Samuel except for a brief moment in 1 Samuel chapter 19. And then we hear of his death in 1 Samuel 25. This is the end of Samuel's life. And the themes of sight and the heart come to a point in 1 Samuel 16 as his life ends. And so uh, before we get to 1 Samuel 16, you're going to need to uh, follow closely and carefully as we weave our way through the preceding 16 chapters. So if you have a, a Bible, uh, follow through. We're going to be going through and tracing these threads so we can really understand the, uh, the point that the author is trying to make as he brings these threads to a conclusion in 1 Samuel 16. The whole story begins with um, Elkanah going up to Shiloh as a faithful man with his two wives, one who is fertile and has children, the other Hannah who doesn't. And Hannah, in her distress and anguish of spirit, goes to the tabernacle and is praying before God, a godly woman, a godly, anguished prayer. And Eli, who is uh, the high priest, who is the Levite over the tabernacle, interprets her anguish as drunkenness. Literally says he guards her mouth. Guarding of the tabernacle is a Levitical duty, but he relies on his own understanding of his limited sight to reach a judgment that is 180 degrees from the truth. A godly, anguished prayer interpreted as drunkenness. Later, later Eli is said to be a man whose eyesight is poor. His physical eyesight uh, has, has been preceded by spiritual blindness. 
in the context of Hannah's and how he interpreted her prayer. Samuel is born to Hannah in response to that prayer. He is uh, placed in uh, accordance to the vow that Hannah made. He is placed in the household of Eli to serve in the tabernacle. He is placed into a failing household of priests. He is placed into an unfaithful household of priests. And in one sense, he is, is in comparison there, David, as we will see later, uh, is placed into Saul's household. God raises up the faithfulness of David in the midst of an unfaithful household, just as he does with Samuel in the unfaithful household of Eli. Eli's sons are rotten in 1 Samuel 2. It, it tells us their rottenness. Now the sons of Eli, verse 12, were corrupt and they did not know the Lord. They were corrupt and they did not know the Lord. They would steal from the sacrifices to make themselves fat. Whereas Samuel, the young Samuel, in contrast... In verse 18, ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Samuel appears in contrast to Hophni and Phinehas. This perhaps gives us a little bit of an insight, that chapter on uh, Eli's quick judgment of Hannah. He lives in a household, he oversees a household that is ruled by its appetites. Their lust for food related for women. And when he sees a godly, anguished woman in the tabernacle, he interprets her actions in light of his own household. She must be ruled by her appetites. Drunkenness is the conclusion. It is easy. It is not uncommon for the failings of our own lives, the failings of our own households, we then use those and we interpret all other actions in light of that reality. In verse 29, it tells us that Eli has honored his sons over and above honoring God. And as a result, in verse 35, God says through an unnamed man of God, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. Judgment is falling on this blind priest's household, and God says, I will raise up one who will do according to my heart, who is faithful. A priest will be raised up who will be chosen by God, but also will be qualitatively different to Eli and his household. He'll be of a different type of man. He will do according to my heart. His heart will be after my heart. will do what my heart desires. And of course, we also have the striking contrast. When Samuel grows up, we find in 1 Samuel 8, that Samuel's sons actually resemble Eli's sons. Israel doesn't want Samuel's sons judging over them because they take bribes and pervert justice. Yet Samuel is not rejected 
as Eli is rejected. Now when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 9, Samuel meets Saul for the first time in a humorous story that Saul is traipsing around looking for donkeys and his servant suggests they go and find the local prophet and they bring him a gift. There's a play on words there which seems to be a subtle criticism of the way prophecy was working in Israel at the time. Someone you bring a gift to to get an answer. And the author uses sort of this little bit of old etymology. We call him prophet, used to be called a seer, someone who sees. This is 1 Samuel 9, 9. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer, to someone who has sight, who can see things. He is now called a prophet, who was formerly called a seer. And when uh, the Lord has told Samuel, at this point, all God's communication with Samuel is audibly, it's through his ears, it's not through the vehicle of sight. God tells Samuel, tomorrow at this time, verse 16, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him as commander of my people. So when Saul draws near to Samuel in the gate, verse 8, and said, please tell me, where is the seer's house? How does Samuel answer? He says, I am the seer. A very bold answer. I am the seer. Go up and I will tell you what will happen. So you have the author paying, drawing us attention to sight and heart. And when Saul anoints Samuel as king in 1 Samuel 10, 24, he presents uh, Saul, and Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him? All of Israel, do you see him? Look at him, whom the Lord has chosen, that there is no one like him among all the people. Here he is. You can see whom the Lord has chosen and why he has chosen. There's none like him. That is available to the sight of Israel in Samuel's presentation, it would seem. But as the story progresses, it's clear that, that things don't go well. And soon Samuel is overseeing the transition from Saul's kingship to David's kingship. Saul disobeys God, and he does it because of what? Verse 11 of chapter 13, and Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, then I said, this is going to happen, and I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering, a sacrifice. And Samuel says, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. You saw, you reached a judgment, and you have done foolishly. You have not obeyed the commandment of the Lord. And what is the result? Now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Just as with Eli's household, the judgment, I'm going to raise up a faithful priest who's going to do what is according to my heart. Here, I'm going to raise up a faithful king according to my heart. 
Uh, some discussion, what that exactly means. Is it an expression of just election? God says, I'm going to raise up a man after my own heart, after my own choosing. This is the man I am going to choose. Does it say something about the character of David? Does it tell us something about David's heart? He's a man after God's own heart. He is like God's heart. His heart is similar to the Lord's. It is following hard after him. Seems clear that that is both. God is seeking David out, but he's seeking David out because he has worked in David's heart that which is pleasing to him. So it is a matter of choice, God's choice, and that David, the king that God seeks out to replace Saul, is qualitatively different. As Samuel says in 1 Samuel 15, 28, the kingdom is going to be given to someone better than you. Yet, of course, we know that David went on to be an adulterer and a murderer. Yet the kingdom was not removed from him. So as we see these threads, as we see these key words and these key ideas, let's go to the text that we read at the beginning, 1 Samuel 16, and see where they all these threads come together in a way that critiques and humbles Samuel. The context of 1 Samuel 16 is Saul. Saul has been rejected, and yet Samuel is mourning for him, and seemingly mourning excessively. God says, why? How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him? How long will you mourn for him, seeing I have rejected him? I have provided myself a king among the sons of Jesse. Literally, I have seen a king for myself. You're mourning for Saul where I have already seen the king that I will replace him with. So Samuel does go. It's a little bit of a ruse to cover his tracks in case Saul hears of it. The sons of Jesse are sanctified and they're invited to the sacrifice. So it was, verse 6, when they came that he saw Eliab. He looked at Eliab. He saw Eliab, the eldest son of Jesse, and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Samuel, the seer, I am the seer, sees and jumps to the wrong conclusion. He says, here is the one. We don't know whether he, he says it publicly or is, whether he's saying it to himself. He's in his heart. It doesn't, doesn't, it's not clear in the text. It would be awkward if he said it publicly, obviously. Be, Eliab would be a little bit disappointed. Having had this thread of seeing all the way through and Samuel declaring himself confidently to be the seer, he's clearly not the seer he thought he was. He associates Saul's chosenness with God's chosenness as something you can see. And he could not be more wrong. As one commentator puts it, he is a sightless seer. He is a seer who cannot see. 
not accurately. He has forgotten that there is a gulf that separates human from divine vision. And his, him seeing Eliab like Saul is obviously clear when he says, God says, don't look at appearance or its height. God says, I have rejected him. New King James translated with the refuse. I have rejected him. That is the same language that is used for Saul. I have rejected him. Don't think I'm doing a Saul again. Don't think Saul is the model. That has been rejected. Samuel the seer seems to be relying on his own sight. He remains attached to his own human evaluation despite God's rejection of Saul that has been made clear time and time again to him. There seems to be a more than a hint of stubbornness in Samuel at this point. How long will you mourn for Saul? The question takes on a different light in this context. David is then sent for and is really the, a promising option. Logic could have worked it out that this was the one, seeing he was the only son left. And God has already said there's going to be a king among Jesse's things. And he is the youngest or smallest, and we'll discuss that term in a minute. From a biblical perspective, the youngest son who's not invited is a good candidate for kingship. And the fact that he's the last of Jesse's sons, the laws of probability make him a good candidate. And then he's described as having beautiful eyes and good to see. Lots of seeing words and pictures here. Yet when he arrives, Samuel does nothing initially. He appears unable to see what is before him. God says to him, stand up, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Now, taken on its own, that seems fairly innocuous. But in light of the story thus far, the ancient commentators, which there are numerous, see this as a rebuke. You are in the presence of the king. Stand up, anoint him. What are you doing still sitting down? Haven't you seen? And in the context of the narrative, that seems to be a careful and insightful reading of the text. Even when the one whom the Lord has chosen, whom the Lord has seen, walks before him, Samuel doesn't see it. The Lord has to tell him. And verse 7, obviously, is the key. The Lord says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance. For why? Because the Lord... Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The way the English is presented there, you have man looks on the outside, but the Lord looks at the heart. So the difference between divine vision and human vision is the extent of the vision. We can only see external things. Now those external things can can speak of internal matters, but ultimately, we cannot see into anyone's heart. The Lord, that's where his vision starts. At the heart. 
But it is also the way the Hebrews expressed there, a comparison of the organ of vision. For us, we can only see, in our own sense, with our eyes. Yet the old Lord looks with the heart. He has a different perspective. They're viable alternatives to the reading, but both are true. But Samuel... hasn't got that right. And so 1 Samuel 16 presents Samuel as the sightless seer, but he anoints the man after God's heart, whom God has seen, but no one else has. He is chosen by God. He is qualitatively different to those who have gone before, but at this moment in time and in history, It is invisible to those physical eyes looking at the time. Only God saw what qualified David to be the king. And so we need to move on to David's beginnings, because this is his beginnings, before we apply this all to us. David is said in verse 9 to be the youngest. Um, uh, sorry, verse 11. There remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. So all seven sons have passed before Samuel. And, they, and then Samuel goes, none of these have, have, have the Lord has chosen. There are any more. And he says, well, the youngest is out keeping the sheep. So David is the eighth son. Now in 1 Chronicles 2.15, and I'll leave it for you to look up uh, later, We have the genealogy of Jesse, and Jesse is said to have seven sons, and David is the seventh. So we have a conflict between Chronicles and Samuel. Samuel says Jesse has eight sons, David is the the youngest. Chronicles says Jesse, David is the seventh, and the eighth isn't mentioned. How do we resolve this? Well... The Hebrew word that's translated youngest could also be the smallest or have the idea of insignificance, the least. And it seems that is what the situation is. That is the way of resolving it. David isn't the youngest son, but he is considered the insignificant one. He may be the smallest in stature as well. Why isn't David invited to the feast? Jesse has been told to bring all his sons. Why isn't David there? Why is David left with the sheep? Remember the story in 1 Samuel chapter 17. David is doing the packed lunch run. Uh, You call it a sack lunch, I think. We call it packed lunch. Um, for the, for the older three guys who are doing the, the serious men work in the army of Israel, but they're not really doing it, just standing there quivering. But Eliab says what? Who have you left those few sheep with? So not only is he sidelined to look after the sheep, there's really not very many sheep as well. I mean, it's not an impressive sheep farm that they're running. David seems to be sidelined, rejected. He is not considered worth noticing 
or even inviting to the feast. Stick with those few sheeps. Sheep. And when he turns up, no one's expecting anything to happen. But God says, no, this is my man. David's beginning is a beginning of rejection, of being sidelined, of zero expectations. Yet God says he's a man after his own heart. So what we do know, though, therefore, is that David didn't waste this rejection. He bore it faithfully. He allowed God to deal with his heart during those years in the field. He obviously learned to kill lions and bears in preparation for Goliath, but he was learning far more, but none of which was visible to the physical eyes of those around when God chooses David, he's choosing someone like his own heart. The heart matters. Eli had the position, but not the heart. He honored his sons over and above God. Saul had the gifts and the talents and the impressive physique and the position, but lacked the heart. David, it seems, had none of those things to the physical eye, but he did have the right heart. God had worked on it. And that's, that, what, that's what set him apart. And yet no one recognized him at the time. But that's whom God chose. But not even Samuel could see it. Samuel the seer. Who started well in one sense in a similar context. Having to learn faithfulness in a very difficult context. But by the end of his life he can't see beyond the physical appearance. How does that apply to us? How does all this as we uh, draw to a close? Well, regarding ourselves, regarding ourselves as a as a, as a church and as individuals, we need to realize that the heart matters. That's where God places the value. What, is, what can be seen less so. No matter how gifted we are and how many talents we have and how successful we are, if our heart is wrong, the fate of Eli and Saul awaits us. Where do we focus our energies? Where do we focus our attention and God working in our heart in all situations or in only those things that will be easily recognized by those with limited human vision whether we are exalted or abased because God in his providence raises some up and not others so whether we are exalted or abased Make sure you don't waste what God has asked of you and the position that God has put you in. Lean into it and allow God to work on your heart. And that work happens in secret. 
That work happens behind closed doors. It is not easily visible. Lean into Christ. Allow Him to make your heart in conformity to His. What about regarding how we see? We have to remember that there is a gulf between divine vision and human vision. We are prone to rush to conclusions based on what we see and what we hear. And in one sense, we are trained to do so in this age more than any other. The age of the internet, social media, 24 hours news. We need to respond now. We need to come to a judgment now. We need to make a decision now. Time is no longer seen as a valuable commodity. Remember, a fool is quick to give his opinion. We see most situations from a distance and pronounce before the Lord is X and Y. This is what the Lord is doing. And we base our judgments on that which we can see with our eyes, success, gifts, or any other form of worldly assessments, whether it's dress or speech or manner, whatever it may be, and therefore we elevate on occasions. We're in danger of elevating souls, and we leave David's with a few sheep in the field. And as the preacher told us, which we quoted at the beginning from Ecclesiastes, we do so out of pride. I am the seer, said Samuel, and then couldn't see beyond the end of his nose when the Lord's anointed was standing before him. And the older we are, the more prone we are to it. We have been round the block. We have seen God's blessing. We have history. We cease to be patient and we become proud. And then we see that people are different. They think differently. And we judge accordingly. And God steps in and says, no, stand up. This vessel I have chosen. He, she, they are like me. They are after my heart. They just don't happen to be like you on the outside. Christ is our example. It is striking that in Isaiah, the descendant of David, David's greatest son, the rod that comes forth of Jesse, how he's described, it says in verse 3, chapter 11, verse 3, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But his judgment is according to righteousness. Of course, in Hebrew, there is a word play between the idea of fear and seeing. There's a word play between the two. Christ does not judge according to the sight of the eyes, but he fears the Lord. Do we want to see properly? Do we want to end well in the way we see and in the way our hearts work? Do we want to see properly? Do you want to judge according to true judgment? Well, don't trust your eyes. Look to Christ. Fear God and be patient. 
And in doing so, by God's grace, we won't do a Samuel, but we will end well, and it will all be by his grace. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the gift of your word. We are grateful for the challenges that it sets before us. Father, we pray in in the circumstances that you set us that we would be those who lean into them and allow you to work in our hearts to bring them into conformity with your heart that we may change into Christ's likeness. And Father, with regards to our sight and our judgment, Father, may we turn our eyes to Christ first and last, beginning and end, where we fear you. And may our judgment be according to truth and righteousness. Amen. You may be seated. In the Old Testament, God promised Israel the land of Canaan. And when the spies searched out the land, they brought back signs of that good land, the fruit of the promised land. But you know the story. The people saw the signs, they tasted how good it was, and they didn't believe that God could actually give it to them. They said there were giants in the land, and they would be destroyed. And so, because they didn't believe, God required them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. In the New Testament, we have been given a far greater promise. Jesus, our Joshua, is not leading us merely into a tiny plot of land in the Middle East. He has sent us out into all the world to disciple every nation of men. Jesus said that when he was lifted up on the cross, he would draw all people to himself. The promises of the new covenant are glorious and clear. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Isaiah 11.9. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him, Psalm 22.27. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Isaiah 2.2. And Paul says that Jesus has risen from the dead and must reign until all his enemies have been put beneath his feet and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15.25 and 26. These are our promises The meek shall inherit the earth. And so as we come to this table, week after week, the Lord lays before us the signs of the new promised land. This bread and this wine are taken from this world, this land, and they are the sure promises that the Lord is giving us this world. And so, do not doubt, only believe. There are giants in our lands too. But if the Lord is with us, no one can stand against us. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he he took bread and he gave thanks. So let us pray. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that when Jesus was lifted up on the cross and his body was broken, you began to draw all the nations to him inexorably. Father, we thank you that now 2,000 years later, we are on the other side of the planet from where he died and rose again, and we are signs that this is happening. Father, we ask you that you would give us faith to believe these promises, that as we eat this bread and drink this wine, we would believe 
that all the nations are coming. Father, we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tim reminded us this morning that God looks with his heart and we need his heart and we are, we are stuck. We are in trouble. Uh, we don't see as he sees. And this lines right up with what Paul actually prays for the Ephesians. And if you thought of this passage when he was preaching, I was thinking of this passage again and again. This is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1. He says that God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance of the saints, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. And we, we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we might have this wisdom. And it turns out that the gospel is the wonderful promise that God has given us the means to do that. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that works in you and works in me. So as you go about your your tasks this week, you say, I need eyes in my heart that are open. I need to be able to see. I need to understand like God does. Well, let this be your prayer and believe that God is already at work in you and already at work in this world, bringing it to pass. So go now with the blessing of your God. The Lord bless you and guard you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And amen.